Trinity Podcast. Welcome to the third IT Training Podcast, where we invite key players to discuss hot topics in the IT training arena. Today we're looking at IT training and professionalism. I'll also be asking my guests about their favourite gadgets and how they see the future of IT. In the studio today, I have with me... Robert Chapman, Firebrand Training. And... Adam Thilthorpe from the BCS. And I'm Helen Boddy, editor of IT Training. Adam, how would you define professionalism? Professionalism means many different things to many different people. So uh, sometimes when we're talking to CEOs and we talk about professionalism, it's usually something to do with competitive advantage, um, whether their company um, is achieving growth, whether it's using innovation, um, things like risk mitigation and alliances and um, strategic alliances, and all these things are wrapped up in professionalism. Whereas if you talk to um, you know, myself as a rep- representative of a professional body, I might have a slightly different steer on it. It might not be purely about delivery, but it might also take into account things like um, ethics and some of the ethical conundrums that are out there in the business world today. So it's quite a, a broad sort of church, um, but really for me it's about competence and ability to do um, your role, to grow in that role and to take it forward. Would you agree with that, Robert? And how do you see professionalism fitting in with the training world? I guess I see professionalism slightly more simplistically than the way Adam just described it, because to me professionalism is about obtaining a certain standard. So if you look in um, other industries where professionalism is obvious, for instance, law or accounting or chartered surveyors, you have got a qualification, essentially, that people have to obtain. And it's that standard which can represent Um, The amount of training someone's had, it could, as Adam said, have ramifications to do with ethics and the the moral code, if you like, that people have. But if you're outside of the industry, I think people can judge a a profession and a professional by the fact that they've obtained a certain standard. And that standard is their way of giving, getting trust in that person who's going to do a good job for them. And that's why, essentially, they get hired to do a piece of work, either as an individual or whether it's a company that's taking on the services of a professional organisation like a firm of accountants. I would agree with that. Um, In more mature professions... Uh, as, as the ones that, that Robert has just, just given an example of. But it's quite easy to see that there is a standard, and it's a set standard, and everyone understands what that standard means, and that's what, what constitutes a professional. Where it's perhaps a bit more difficult with IT is that we're quite immature as a profession. And that standard hasn't been or isn't ubiquitous across all of the across the entire industry. And perhaps most importantly, isn't always understood by the, by the layperson outside in society. So a professional through sort of ethics, etc., etc., does have a responsibility to the society in which they in which they operate. If I was to get a surveyor in to look at my house and give me a professional assessment um, on it, I know that that assessment would be the same across various different surveyors who came to see it. They wouldn't be um, influenced by their company's ability to get business out of me. It would be a, a set standard that I could be really confident that I would get the same answer from different people. In IT, we're more immature as a profession and very fast-moving and dynamic as well as a profession, and therefore it's a bit more difficult. However, these standards do exist currently in the market, and, and it's our job really to push the importance of these standards upon people at IT professionals and also on, therefore, give comfort and levels of com- comfort to people in society and also, perhaps most importantly, to start with, the business world as well. 
So what sort of standards, obviously the BCS has um, CITP, Mm -hmm. are are there other standards as well? Do you think are important? I think CITP is incredibly important, um, Chartered IT Professional, but also Chartered Engineer, um, Chartered Scientist. Um, Sometimes these can be seen as as pretty UK-centric, and again, I think the IT industry is one of the the first and really truly global industries, and there is a dynamic there that has to be looked at. But um, these standards do exist. They are not all-pervasive, as perhaps becoming a a Chartered Surveyor, to use the earlier example, we all know that the Royal Institute of Chartered Surveyors um, governs that particular industry. We don't currently have that level of, how best to put it, sort of market share, if you like, with regards to all IT professionals going for chartered status. And in fact, chartered status won't be for all people, but it should be the gold standard, and it's certainly with the way that um, we look at promoting um, chartered status in this country, it is the gold standard. And it is a standard rather than a qualification, and I think it's important to make that distinction as well. So it's, it, for me, it's about a proof of competence. And you can prove competence through various different routes, not just qualifications, but it might be academic qualifications. It could be uh, just for the job training. Um, continuous professional development is incredibly important. Um, and also an, a recognition of experience as well. But So it's quite a... The standard, if you like, is, is, is quite a complicated uh, means of showing that you have a competence to fulfil a particular role. See, I think the challenge that IT's got, and I agree in some ways that it's an immature industry, but it's been going for, what, 40-odd years now in some guise or other, if not longer than that. I mean, I think IBM have been around for 100 years now, even if they started off making clocks at the beginning. But the challenge, I think, that you've got in IT compared with some of those other industries like charter surveyors is charter surveyors are, compared to IT, very stovepipe. You know, this is what a charter surveyor does, and I'm sure there are specialisations within it. But they are things that you tend to build on top of in the same way that accountants and lawyers might go into tax specialisation or um, marriage disputes, etc. There is a fundamental common body of knowledge that you learn and then you specialise and go down into lower levels of granularisation. Whereas if you look at IT... A programmer and a systems administrator have got completely different skill sets and may not understand anything of each other's worlds. So there isn't essentially a common theme that can underpin those two. What you tend to find people doing, and it's in a sense point solutions, is they go to a vendor where they've got an understanding of technology and they take their qualifications and that becomes their badge as opposed to having an overarching badge that goes across the whole of the profession. I appreciate that's the the goal of the CITP but I think when you look at HR professionals for instance they have got a devil of a job understanding who to hire and why to hire them on the basis of qualifications or or other forms of professional um, badges of office if you like because it is a very very complicated world even if you pick just the Microsoft world they've completely revamped their certification structure recently to make it more technology and career orientated but even for companies like Firebrand, where we're talking to people all the time about those sorts of qualifications, they are still very complicated to understand where they fit with you as an individual. And it must be very difficult for HR managers to understand who do I hire on the basis of what. So, Robert, do you find that your customers do find it difficult to understand all the different qualifications that are out there? Is it a maze for them? Is there some way that it could be simplified? 
I'm sure there's a way that we can simplify uh, what's the word, smorgasbord of qualifications that exist, but it will require, I think, either a single body, which potentially I suppose could be the BCS, or the vendors themselves to actually get together and try and find some common ground by which they define structures for the way qualifications are put together. What we tend to find is that we're much more demand-driven. So although we do spend time explaining to people how qualifications fit, it's normally on the basis they've come to us either looking to be trained on a technology or knowing that they want a particular qualification. And therefore the conversation is fairly linear from that perspective because it's putting the question they're asking in the context of something they already understand. It's very rare that someone actually comes to you and says, talk to me about all the qualifications I could have from Microsoft, Cisco, Linux, etc. I think it's not really about the individuals, it's about the managers inside of an organisation that are looking at recruitment, either from an HR perspective or an IT manager perspective. They're the ones that should be looking at some form of um, maybe skills metrics because of the complexity of their business and trying to understand how they plug gaps so that they've got all the, the right technology skills. It could be simplified in the sense of it being explained. I'm not sure it can be simplified in the sense of you're not going to be able to get that number of vendors to suddenly agree to use the same terminology with slight modifications based on their technology. And also, it's not very practical. You know, a, a, a database, a programming language, an operating system, hardware have all got very, very different requirements in terms of the types of skills that you might need to operate, develop, administer them on a, on a, a professional basis. Mm-hmm. Would you find as well that the arguments around standards, but vendor-specific qualifications are, by their very nature, specific towards one set of technology. And what we're talking about with standards sometimes is a a broader professionalism type approach, whereby um, the skills and the skills that you learn and that you put into practice day to day are always going to be able to be applied by someone who's particularly good, rather than something with, that's specific for a piece of technology that may or may not be in use in a few years' time. And often that the way standards are thought about in more established professions is is that understanding. And there's always the, the, the stuff about soft skills and all that kind of good stuff, and you can go on training courses about all that. But it is about a, a set of skills which are which you can take and you can transfer from, from different parts of the business. Um, and it's some of these arguments now with regard to standard are yes, your ability to apply technology, and there's a whole host of skills and, and qualifications around that, but it's also understanding the business and how you might apply that, apply those technologies for the benefit of the business and understanding it, talking about it in layman's terms and all these other areas. Is that, is that about standards, or is, or is that different to an argument about qualifications? Again, I think this is where the breadth and the depth of IT makes this task extraordinarily complex, because if you like at the top of the pyramid you have architects for instance that may not have any idea about the, the detail of connecting a database to a, to a website from a detail perspective but they understand the architectural requirement of it and therefore trying to find something that is meaningful to someone at the top of the pyramid at the bottom of the pyramid is, is an incredibly difficult task again a lot of the vendors are starting to put architecture led qualifications in to try and address that but they're still being driven on from a technology perspective although increasingly they are recognizing that you know if they're microsoft they have to coexist with open systems for instance and so being an architect in the microsoft world might mean that you have to explain how you can integrate with a unix operating system for Mm. instance um i think the vicious and the virtuous circle that 
doesn't really exist at the moment in IT is having um, something maybe that's kind of parallel to your position in IT by which people want to have the qualification. And this could, stroke should be, I think, the CITP, that hiring managers should be looking for technology-based qualifications, for instance, alongside something like CITP, which gives a rubber stamp of somebody's license to operate within IT. But again, it's, it's a very broad area that that qualification needs to address, and its meaning has to be very clear to the people that are looking at it and also the people that want to get it as well. Absolutely. Um, there's a few things that, that you've spoken about that, that I think ring true, is, um, is, the, is the breadth of IT, and it's also the impact on everything of IT as well. It, often people seem to talk about IT as if it's somehow, you can put it in a small compartment to one side, and you can draw on it every now and again, but actually um, IT is, has an impact on everything that we do, sort of when we get up in the morning to when you go to bed, there's so many systems that you come into contact with, even if you don't know about it. So it is absolutely massive, the, the breadth. And you said earlier about HR professionals, and we have products and services ourselves that, that's based around helping HR professionals to recruit people who are skilled and competent and can prove that competence in certain areas. But I think what CIPD have, has done um, with regard to their, them as a professional body, if you like, is is quite indicative of another route that you could perhaps go down where it is purely compliance-led. So now, if you were looking at a company and firebrand when you go out and you recruit someone who's going to work for you in HR and recruitment you know that you're going to go after someone who is um, a member of CIPD that's happened over a very short period of time I would argue and the, the reason being is it's a compliance led model whereby to protect the company against um, potential litigation about you know ageism and racism and sexism you know that you, you've sort of rubber stamped, you've, you've protected yourself against that risk somewhat by employing someone who's CIPD qualified. How do we turn that around or, or do we want to turn that around so that people, when you hire people in IT, you have a similar seal of approval, if you like, that they are what they purport to be? If you look at that, what essentially saying is that the law was the thing that drove the uptake of CIPD because of the way that um, employment laws have got tightened, strengthened, however you want to look at it, mm. probably because of the, the European community. Um, and that kind of law is not, I don't believe, ever going to exist across IT. However, what you might find, and you've seen traction occur in a similar way in, in other bits of IT, is that there are parts of the IT landscape where that might be true. So um, financial services could be an example of it, that maybe there are qualifications that we could, could be developed or an extension, if you like, of the CITP that would mitigate some of the risk of a financial institution has to do with fraudulent trading, being hacked, you know, some security-led thing, which if we could find a way of getting traction there, maybe through some sort of legal aspect to it, the impact it could have in that part of the overall IT community might mean the rest of the IT community look at what's happening in that, if you like, niche and then start to say, well that's worked really well there, we should mm. start applying it to things where it doesn't necessarily have an, a law that's underpinning it and where I've seen something similar to that happen is if you look at the Prince 2 qualification and more importantly the methodology behind the Prince 2 project management, that originally came out of what was called the CCTA and I think that's probably 20 odd years old and it was developed by the British government because they wanted a way of managing projects it 
was very successful within government, but as people from government left government and went into the commercial world and didn't find an equivalent in the commercial world, they started applying it, and it therefore, if you like, bled over from being a, a public sector initiative into the commercial world, and it is now you know, pervasive in this country, not so much on a global platform. And I think that's the sort of thing that CITP, as an example, needs, is something to kind of kick-start it. I mean, IT is a clearly a global thing that everybody uses it on a global basis, but the really big organisations that can ha- affect the most amount of change are the ones that are global organisations, the Barclays and the JP Morgans and the, those large IT manufacturers. They operate everywhere, and the vendors, Microsoft, etc., they do things on a global basis, and a qualification needs to go to that level, doesn't it? To- Absolutely, and we're, we're seeing that currently, so... Um we take it for CITP, so we've got some 18,000 um, odd CITPs in this country, but where we're really seeing growth is is through some of the, the global players in the marketplace. So Accenture, IBM, Capgemini looking to drive equality, if you like, really across their teams as the kind of um, standards that are available to them. And they want those to be taken up across across the world and all of their, on their global staff. So you do have now people working on the same team, on the same project, but based in North America, UK, um, the Philippines and India, but they're all part of the same team, and so, but they need to be operating to the same standard, and I think that is going to drive um, significant growth with regard to CITP in the in the, in the coming years. Chartered, of course, is a standard that's very much understood in the UK market and has been for some time. Some other countries do do have very good recognition of that, so we we need to think as well about how this is going to be grown globally but it's certainly I think you're right I think it needs to be driven by some of these major employers it's all very well relying on a particularly altruistic argument as to why an individual might take it upon themselves to make sure that their proof of competence etc is is as good as it can be but when it is also being demanded of them by major employers then I think we're going to talk about the snowball effect that that you were that you were talking about earlier isn't the challenge for the BCS, though, owning the CITP umbrella, in that you're called the British Computer Society? How are you going to get it to go international? Because that's almost a great way of saying to somebody, don't touch it with a barge pole because it's come from Britain. That's only if you see negative connotations surrounding Britain, isn't it? <laughs> it's not my perception. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's Im- important to understand that the BCS, the B of BCS, stands for global, especially when you're talking to French people. <laughs> Just to come back to maybe a more um, simplistic point, why bother at all with professionalism? Yes, on, on <laughs> I better put that in first. Yes, um, and on so many different levels um, in the business world, it's about competitive advantage. Being a rather small island somewhere off the coast of Europe, we actually have a maintained a position of the fifth largest economy in the world. Um, that is not based anymore on a manufacturing industry or indeed on natural resources, but really about our. our our ability to compete in the knowledge marketplace, and that is purely underpinned by IT. So I think it's important to our to our national economy. Because of that, it's also about getting the best talent into this industry, and um, that has that has knock on effect. If you go onto Google and and, and type in um, IT projects, get a list of five thousand disasters all the time, ignoring the fact that this thing, um, the internet, seems to be quite robust and has pretty much revolutionised everything that we do in society today. So it's it's. Um, there's all sorts of arguments, I think, that out there about professionalism, but I would say, yes, it's incredibly important. I think skills are more important because professionalism is a standard that you've achieved. It's 
not what it is that you do that differentiates you. Okay. The UK's economy is differentiated and is the fifth largest because of the skills people have, and they act in a professional way. And when you talk about professionalism within a community of people, that's the way that essentially that they're behaving, whether there's a badge or not that they're wearing, is, is almost a bit academic, isn't it? Professionalism is an attitude and a, a, a way of operating as opposed to the reason that you're different. But I, I would agree. I think, yes, I think perhaps it's down to definition then as to what you understand by professionalism but I don't think you can be a professional in a given um, sector unless you have the skills required to make sure that you are competent and able Just coming back to your point Robert about um, the importance of skills versus professionalism, what about um, skills versus experience how do you think those two interrelate and training versus experience how do you think that should be part of the professionalism or skills mix well clearly you skills without experience is, is is a little bit of a kind of a neutered model because you might know how to do something but you need to know how to do it in the real world but also skills and experience are about context one of the i think the the wonderful things about it is the rapid uh, rate of change and innovation i mean it's it's phenomenal what has been achieved over a very short amount of time you know and it's it's probably more than exponential in terms of growth and complexity and and rates of change forward so having an experienced person in a very old technology is ultimately doomed to failure so there is a, a role that training plays which is either getting people with existing skills to understand new technologies as they come out or people that have got older skills that need to migrate into the, the newer world, you know, COBOL programmers becoming Pascal programmers, becoming C++ programmers, etc., etc. Um, so I think it's not it's not one versus the other. There's a, a, a triumvirate there that they need to balance with each other. Um, if you're a chief security officer of an organisation, having experience as well as having um, skills and maybe qualifications to back those skills up with is, is vitally important because you've got to be able to deal with unknown problems in a very mature way and you only really get that through experience because it's not um, a, a bounded problem when you talk about IT security using this as an example. It's an unbounded problem. You don't know where the next threat is going to come from or what shape it's going to look like and you're going to have to deal with a crisis and that typically something that you know yes you can give people skills to help them in a crisis but experience and having been through the mill a few times is going to um, make their ability to deal with that crisis much easier than somebody that's effectively a rookie but I think the profile of IT workers not only is changing but has to change and people that have got lots of experience have still got lots and lots of stuff to give if their skills are out of date, then that becomes a different question. That's more about the individual and possibly the company not keeping them sharp as their business, as the technology moves forwards. I think that's exactly right. Um, because, again, it's down to definitions, really, with regards to what is a professional. I think a professional can be defined as someone, as a major part of it, that is, has a commitment to continuous professional development. And if you're not keeping your skills current, if you're not up to date with, with what's happening in the industry, then your ability to to do and fulfil your role and, and, and fulfil your potential is, is severely limited. So, Adam, for anyone listening to this today, um, what would you say to them if they think, well, I want to go about proving that I'm more professional? How, how should they do that at the moment? I think 
sort of lifelong learning is such a, a, a major issue now with regard to professionalism, but also in, in the IT um, industry specifically. So it would be a commitment to um, keeping those skills up to date and in the business world certainly understanding what the business is trying to achieve. I think that knowledge is, is the most important in trying to figure out what skills you need and how you're going to implement technology to, to the benefit of your organisation. So I think those are two major major areas. Robert, same question? I'm not sure I can give a better answer than that. <laughs> I would agree. I think IT people need to understand the technology that exists today and that's coming down the track so that they can give their businesses competitive advantage, but they need to understand technology in, in the context of how a business works. And that is increasingly important because of things like offshoring of technology projects where some of the not lower level skills but in terms of more of the mass of the skill if you like you know the programming etc is being put offshore but what you can't really put offshore is somebody that is local to the people that are part of the business and having an understanding and interface and translating the way the business wants to grow and differentiate itself and translating that into how technology could be used to exploit those sorts of advantages um, so I think all IT professionals have got to have a balance of technology and business knowledge. Robert, what gadget couldn't you do without? Is there a gadget you couldn't do without, in fact? I, I will confess I'm a complete gadget addict, so I've always got a new gadget on the go, but I think the one that I'm totally addicted to at the moment is a, um, a Garmin Forefront 450 GPS heart rate monitor which allows me to either go cycling or go running, and it tracks exactly where I've been, how far I've been, what my heart rate was at a particular time, the elevation. And then the really cool thing about it is it's got a wireless device that connects to your computer and uploads it onto the PC and then plots it all in Google Earth. So as I've gone on business trips to America and holiday to Thailand and cycling backwards and forwards to work, I've got this Google Earth with all my little routes that I've done in it, and you can see all the points. And I'm, I'm a bit of an, an analytical freak, and I love, love looking at all that stuff. And is your heart rate getting slower or faster? <laughs> I don't want to talk about my health today. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Adam, any, any health gadgets that you like? Um, <laughs> I suppose something I couldn't do without. Um, I'm not sure if that's true, but something that has become so ubiquitous, I can't imagine life without it again. It's probably your mobile phone and then your ability to get your emails on your phone now as well. Thinking back when I'm sort of working at um, in the city when when that wasn't available to us and what a massive change that has what that has made to to people working whether that's good or bad I don't know I'd re- reserve judgment on that if people can learn to switch them off I think that would be healthy and that would be healthier but um, yeah I think it's incredible what that change has brought about I think as you say it's incredible what it's brought about but is it actually a good thing or do people just get too obsessed with being connected all the time. We do rely on it. It's incredible how much people do rely on being connected and how um, out of depth people have begun to feel when, when they're not connected. And uh, it's, it, that, that's, been, that's been something that's happened over a relatively short space of time. I think the, the criticisms of mobile devices where you can read your email on it are exactly the same arguments that I heard when mobile phones first came out. And people say, oh, I don't want to be phoned all the time, you know. And you have that conversation, well, you can turn your phone off. And, you know, the conversation today is don't look at your emails. Mm. Turn off the facility that syncs it. You know, you're going on holiday. You choose when you do something. It doesn't tell you when to do it. You, you are in control of the device. It's not the other way around. And that's about 
discipline and focus on a human level, isn't it? And if you're unfocused and undisciplined, then <laughs> I'm sure that if it's not that problem, it'll be a different problem. Fair point. Have you got a favourite web- website, Adam? Uh, I use Wingaroo a lot. Um, it gives me uh, wind strengths, tides and um, wave heights at various locations all over the world but and also in the UK for windsurfing and surfing and sailing. And it's very, very accurate and it's more accurate than any other weather forecast that um, I've ever come across. And that's a big thing in a sort of windsurfing sailing community. And is it true you have shares in that website? Uh, <laughs> is, I think it's actually run out of Czechoslovakia or somewhere. I'm not actually sure, but I, I should do. Is Good it point. Any, is it any use for the normal weather forecast? It, you can use it for normal weather forecasts. It's got you know rainfall in millimetres and all sorts, and it uses all the tidal buoys and everything. It's um, Yes, it's a bit geeky for weather enthusiasts. <laughs> <laughs> Wind guru, yeah. <laughs> Robert, my favourite website? Um, the one that I probably use more often at the moment is a website called Flickr, which is owned by Yahoo and is a photography website. And I do quite a lot of photography and I've got quite diligent uploading all my personal photographs, but also photographs to do with work. So we have a, a Flickr work account and it's kind of a becoming a, a bit of a living history of the company, as it were. So it's not quite as possibly tedious as writing a sort of a company blog it's you know go to the pub or have a company do or somebody goes on a, a conference or whatever we put lots of photographs up of what's going on so it's quite a good way of keeping a fairly disparate group of individuals that are based in many different offices kind of up to speed on what's going on but it's a great website from a technology perspective it's all ajax driven and the user interface is gorgeous it's a great bit of web programming as well so you're using it for internal comms rather than keeping in touch with customers yes mm. although if a customer found it they would see what we get up to which may not be a good thing <laughs> <laughs> adam where do you see the future of it blimey um <laughs> one word yeah <laughs> better uh, i think there needs to be a realization um as to everything that it can touch and once that realisation comes about, then it's going to just keep on influencing and growing. What I think it also means is that it's going to change the nature of relationships, certainly in business. I think it's going to be more of an emphasis on collaboration. And I think people will source products and services from a known network. And it's going to be how do companies and businesses interact with people and with those networks. And I think that's going to drive a massive change in the way people do business and interact with each other what do you mean by networks well if you um already if you go on to i mean the obvious examples you go onto facebook and see you know people have got groups of friends on there that are in the several hundred um and in the future you may well be sourcing products and services from that known network of people you've got no need to go outside because this network is so um, expansive and there's so many tendrils going off in so many different directions you'll be able to get something from a um a trusted source, if you like, and it's how do companies get involved with that. So you buy Facebook for however many a billion, and then what do you do with it? How do you how are you then going to interact with these people without ruining the whole premise of that business? So I think some of these are the, the ways that people interact with each other is going to be particularly interesting going forward. Robert, what about you? Do you think the um, future of IT is a social networking one? Oh, I think social networking will be part of the future of IT, but I think the biggest change that we're going to see in IT, and I think it's it's, not, it's started now, and I think it's probably going to accelerate, is this idea of cloud computing, in that your applications and your data 
don't exist on a physical device they just exist and you get access to them wherever you are and there's a, a new piece of Microsoft technology that's in beta which when you first look at it you don't think it's particularly innovative but I've started using it and it's called Mesh and essentially what it allows you to do is have shared folders that you can put on any device and it's soon going to be on your mobile phone as well and you just put your data there instead of putting it on your local machine although it appears to be on your local machine it just gets synced everywhere you go when you couple that with web browsers and the applications like Flickr, like google mail like hotmail etc you suddenly start to realize that a physical machine isn't what you need to go about doing your job and i think that paradigm to use that horrible expression will grow in the way that corporate computing then extends to use that cloud so you just wherever you are and you've got access to whatever you need and the next version of the microsoft operating system is going to not the next one a future generation of it they're talking about having instead of a a windows operating system essentially it's going to be some cloud operating system which is totally cloud aware so it's not as you understand a pc today it will be a device that just connects and you've got access to everything. And as mobile networks and as Wi-Fi becomes pervasive in this country and every other country you go to, it's just going to work and it's all just going to hook together and it will be much more like electricity, I think. You just plug it in and it will work. Um, Robert, what do you think is the most useful thing that computers do for you? Knowledge. The web and your ability to get answers to questions, I think we've got incredibly complacent about how powerful that is these days you know I look at my kids doing their homework and the fact they can get pictures of stars almost in real time by looking at a website and getting information and knowledge from you know whether it be Wikipedia and you can debate whether it's accurate or not but through to more reliable sources and the timeliness of information is just phenomenal so I think it's just knowledge to me is is the one word that sums it all up. Thank you both very much for coming along today and goodbye. Thank you. Thank you. The IT Training Podcast is produced by the BCS. The UK.